the story of the Garden of Eden, of Adam and Eve. God makes Adam from mud and breath. God makes all creatures and places Adam at their head. God notices Adam is lonely and creates another person who is eventually named Eve or Chava or Hawa, mother of all the living. In between, God tells Adam to eat anything, everything he wants in the garden, except from the tree of knowledge. Let me ask you, how many parents do you know who forbid their children from doing a thing by placing it in their immediate grasp and then walking away? To the surprise of no one, they break the rule. First, Eve eats the fruit from the tree of knowledge, and Adam is with her, and when she offers, he accepts, he eats. When God learns of this transgression, both Adam and Eve are quick to pass the blame. Adam blames Eve and Eve blames the serpent and God curses all three and sends them, casts them from the garden. For those who were raised Christian, this story is offered as the explanation for original sin. Yet the passage predates Jesus by a long while. Before it was a Christian story, it was a Jewish story, and there is no concept of original sin in Judaism. It raises the question, whom does this particular interpretation or narrative serve? Certainly a particular patriarchal form of Christianity, for one. And whom does it not serve? I would say it serves no women, never has, likely never will. But this need not be the only way to understand the story of Eve. This need not be the only narrative. And in fact, it is not the only narrative. In Judaism, you might be familiar with the long-standing tradition among rabbis to create midrash, stories that fill in gaps or attempt to smooth out the many contradictions in scriptural text. During the second wave of feminism in the 1970s, Jewish Feminists claimed the power of Midrash, refusing to let it be the sole dominion of the mostly male rabbinate. They developed the splendiferous tradition of stories to reclaim what was otherwise used against women's collective inherent worth and dignity. Judith Plaskow wrote what became a well-known feminist midrash about Adam's first partner, and it wasn't Eve. Before Eve, according to some ancient midrash traditions written by men, there was Lilith, 
not named in Genesis, but read between the lines and into the text. Those ancient Midrashim tell us that Lilith refused to be subservient to Adam, to lay beneath him and fled the garden. It was her refusal to be subservient that led her to flee, which, and according to the male rabbinate, led her to become a demon. Judith Plaskow's Midrash of nearly 50 years ago tells us of a different Lilith, one who maintains her autonomy and eventually forms a sisterhood of mutual aid with Eve. Whether we believe them or not, whether we take them as fact or myth, creation stories are where we root our collective sense of identity. They provide the foundation for our orientation to the world, at least partially. It is inevitable that we are shaped by them because their influence is at the collective subconscious level. The Haudenosaunee have a different origin story. It does not start with Eve, but with Sky Woman, who created a garden for the well-being of all, whereas Eve was cast out of her garden. In reflecting on the difference between the two stories, Potawatomi author Robin Wall Kimmerer tells us in her delicious book, Braiding Sweetgrass, the following, quote, one story leads to the generous embrace of the living world, the other story to banishment. One woman is our ancestral gardener, a co-creator of the good green world that would be home to her descendants. The other was an exile, just passing through an alien world on a rough road to her real home in heaven. Kimmerer continues, Quote, look at the legacy of poor Eve's exile from Eden. The, the land shows the bruises of an abusive relationship. We can't meaningfully proceed with healing, with restoration, without restoration. But who will tell the stories? End quote. Restoration. Restoration. Yes, who will tell the story of Eve? Will we let the clumsy, often malicious interpreters of ancient scripture, the ones oversaturated with patriarchy and the drive to dominate, be the arbiters of a widely influential story? What do we lose if we see that power to those people deciding that the stories of ancient scripture aren't worth our time or energy? I tell you what we get. Pervasive abuse of women. So pervasive, women blame ourselves for nearly everything, contorting ourselves 
into the shape of shame. We get deep patterns of physical, psychological, and emotional abuse in every culture and tradition. We get laws like the one in Texas, SB8, that places a $10,000 bounty on the heads of pregnant women who dare access medical care levied by men in service to the power of patriarchy. We get missing white woman syndrome where mainstream media pays disproportionate attention to missing white women and ignores missing indigenous women and other women of color. We get any woman identified body demeaned, subjected to systemic violence and pervasive threats of violence. We get a world in which a binary sense of masculine and feminine cuts every human in one way or another, silencing parts of us, maiming souls, stunting psyches, and sometimes killing us. What might we gain if we do not cede that power and authority? What if we were to choose the freedom that comes from accepting responsibility for our destinies, for our trees of knowledge? What if we were to reclaim Eve as ancestor and kin, Shiro and inspiration? Might we lose the false and terrible calm promised only to some of us? What if we were to restore Eve to our lives? What if we were to restore Eve in all of our lives? In the second half of this sermon, I'll try to tackle those questions. How might we understand Eve's decision to eat the fruit as something not sinful and not even a mistake? In juicy situations like this one, the first place I tend to look is poetry. Poetry long before scripture, poetry as scripture. I think that this is one of the telltale signs that I am a Unitarian Universalist. Let me share with you some delightful passages from poets who have claimed the story of Eve as their own, remaking it for all of us, an invitation to shift not only the narrative of Eve, but of our own lives. First, there was the reading from today titled Eve after, written by Danusha Lamaris and published in 2013. Let me share with you again the ending. It goes like this. Foolishness, betrayal, call it what you will. What a relief to feel the weight fall in her palm. And after, not to pretend anymore that the terrible calm was paradise. 
in that piece, you can hear the echoes of an earlier poem written by former U.S. Poet Laureate Rita Dove. It's called, I Have Been a Stranger in a Strange Land, and it ends in this way. And there was no voice in her head, no whispered intelligence lurking in the leaves, just an ache that grew until she knew she'd already lost everything except desire. The red heft of it warming her outstretched palm. Then there is this quick clip of an end to a poem written in 2015 by Ansel Elkins. The title is Autobiography of Eve. Let it be known, I did not fall from grace. I leapt to freedom. And finally, I'd like to share with you this lush, voluptuous piece from Marge Piercy, published in 1998, titled Applesauce for Eve. You are indeed mother of invention, the first scientist. Your name means life, finite, dynamic, swimming against the current of time, tasting, testing, eating knowledge like any other nutrient. We are all the children of your bright hunger. We are all products of that first experiment. For if death was the worm in that apple, the seeds were freedom and the flowering of choice. When I read that last one, I think, yes, this is the Unitarian Universalist Eve, scientist, life, freedom, hungry with curiosity. And I say, thank you, Marge Piercy. In addition to poets, I also look to the feminists who are sometimes also poets. And in this case, I found such good provocative stuff among the Jewish feminists, and not a surprise really, but a joy and worth noting aloud. For instance, Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, writing just this past summer, believes the story of Eve to be revolutionary. She says it is so because it is the first, quote, decision to choose understanding over blissful ignorance, engagement with the world and its pain, instead of remaining in a comfortable bubble. This was the decision to learn and grow and face hard truths, even if doing so sometimes came with difficult consequences. Unitarian Universalist minister, Reverend Rachel Lonberg suggests something similar, that Eve isn't tricked into it. She chooses to eat the apple. Both she and Adam choose to live awake and self-aware. Equally important, if not more so, Reverend Rachel tells us that God doesn't create suffering as punishment. 
frankly, it is through awareness and suffering that we gain the ability to know the difference between right and wrong, a defining aspect of what it means to be human. And so it raises the question of whether we could actually have ever become fully human had we stayed in paradise. There is so much to be learned from this freedom-seeking, bold Eve who is not at all interested in terrible calm. Rabbi Danya writes, Eve teaches us that we can constantly strive to grow and learn and to stretch ourselves and that facing pain may be preferable to the eternal mm -hmm. avoidance of it. And that sometimes we can bring along the people we love if they are willing to join. What a wonderful restoration of that story. What a wonderful restoration of that story. There is so much to celebrate, not condemn, about Eve and her choices. So again, I ask, whom does that old malicious narrative serve? And again, my mind goes to that recent law in Texas, that law that other conservative states are actively trying to pass in their jurisdictions, the law that allows anyone, anyone to sue for $10,000 anyone who helps a woman who's seeking the medical care called abortion more than six weeks after conception, which is often before women know that they're pregnant. This might include a taxi driver or someone, I suppose, who politely holds open a door for her on her journey from home to medical office. The law that has been in whiplash mode with its injunctions and temporary stays that it's so hard to track its status, that law. Do you know that bumper sticker? That bumper sticker, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I am wondering, WWED, what would Eve do? Or WWLD, what would Lilith do? I am convinced that Eve would call BS on that law that bars access to necessary medical care for women, which is at least as important, if not more so, to access to the tree of knowledge. I'm pretty sure that Lilith, who was turned into a demon held responsible for the deaths of thousands of infants, would be angry as all get out about women being demonized for terminating pregnancies and exercising autonomy over their own bodies. I'd wager a fair sum that both Eve and Lilith collectively would support any efforts to help women in Texas or other states access full reproductive rights, including access to abortions they deem right and necessary for themselves. I believe that Eve and Lilith would be cheering on 
any action, even in geographically distant states, geographically distant congregations that would refute the authority of this heinous law. Eve and Lilith would bless efforts to proclaim the inherent worth and dignity of any women being persecuted in this way. What did one of our poets, Ansel Elkins say? Let it be known, I did not fall from grace. I leapt to freedom. May we do what we can to circle round to that freedom. So be it. See to it. Amen. <laughs>